Hello and welcome back to another episode of the official SASTA podcast with your host Harry Stebbings at H Stebbings on Snapchat and from Jason Lampkin at Jason LK on the old Twitter. Now I'm super excited for today's guest. When chatting with Jason about who we would want to have on the show, one of the first names that came up was today's guest, so I'm delighted to welcome Louis Jonkier. Now Louis is the co-founder and co-CEO at Showpad, the company that enables sales teams by making content findable, presentable and trackable. And they've raised funding from some incredible investors, including including Dawn Capital, Hummingbird Ventures and Insight Venture Partners, who more recently led their Series C 50 million fundraise earlier this year. As for Louis, Chopin is actually his second company. He and his co-founder Pieter Jean founded the mobile development agency In The Pocket in 2010, where Louis still serves on the board. And prior to In The Pocket, Louis was a strategic partnership manager at Netlog, where he first met Pieter Jean. However, enough from me, so I'm now going to hand over to Louis, founder at Chopin. Good, that's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Louis, it's such a pleasure to have you on the official SASTA podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Very excited to be here. Very proud to be part of it. Now, talk to me, Louis. How did you come to found Showpad? What was the aha moment for you? Yes. So um, the company I founded together with PG and my co-founder before Showpad was uh, called In The Pocket. And In The Pocket was a services business that developed uh, mobile applications for brands and enterprises. And within that agency, we got the request the moment the iPad was released to develop trade show applications for companies with big sales teams. And those companies were looking for apps that allowed their sales reps on a trade show to find their presentations, update their CRM, make a quote, and basically do anything that they normally would need paper for a laptop, multiple brochures, etc. So we developed uh, such an app for a few customers. Then saw a recurring demand and then decided to make a website for it. So that's when we launched Shopa.com, uh, made our value proposition really clear. And the aha moment for us really came the moment that I think within 12, 13 hours after launching the website, suddenly we started to get a ton of inbound. Customers from the US calling us, hey, we want to buy a thousand licenses. Uh, Audi and Belgium calling us, hey, we want to deploy Shopa across all our showrooms. So within a matter of a few days after launching the website, in great English, we, we got a ton of requests, and that's when we uh, figured out we were into something big. And as of then, we, we started to build out Showpad. So that, that, that's how we started. I, I do have to ask, when it's such a kind of clear and nascent product market fit, where it's, it's just very obvious that you've hit on something very quickly, how do you look yep. to establish a pricing model with, with such little time to think about it? No, yeah, absolutely. So I remember like, the moment we had the, the initial call from the big prospect that was BASF, so a big German chemical company that wanted to buy a thousand licenses for the US market. I mean, we literally had very little clue about how SaaS pricing worked. So as every typical founder, you then go searching on Google, you search to specific other products that are similar. And then we, I mean, got to pricing that was somehow competitive. So we had a few competitors in the space and we made sure that our pricing was a little bit higher, but not, but not that much higher. But I mean, yeah, Google all the way. Uh, the moment we started Showpad, we had no clue on how to uh, set up a proper pricing. So it was really trial and error. And obviously, at that time, at any startup, you, you sell way too cheap, right? So I think the license price that we asked back then was uh, way too cheap for a product like Showpad. But I mean, that's how you get started. Do you agree that founders can always push the price a little bit higher? I, I agree, because as a founder, I think you're, you're an exceptional salesperson. Um, in a sense, that, I mean, 
if you're selling as a founder, I mean, there's a passion, there's the knowledge, there's a dedication for uh, for the product, and and that shows when you're speaking with your initial customers. So I do agree that I mean, if you're uh, savvy as as a founder, if you have some sales and marketing talent, that uh, you're able to sell pretty big contracts. And I think PG and I sold Showpad ourselves until the moment the company was around, I think six seven hundred k NARR, and that's when we started to bring in the first salespeople. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I want to discuss then the kind of co-founding team there of you and PJ. Uh, I'm obviously commonly found interviewing VCs. Uh, VCs often always cite team as the most important thing. So starting with that today, from the early days, how did you look to build out the core executive team around you and PJ with Showpad? What was the thinking behind that? Yeah. So um, Showpad was founded by, by three founders. So PJ and myself, we knew each other from In The Pocket at the services agency we, we co-founded. Before In The Pocket, PJ and I worked together. Uh, we co-founded Showpad with Peter. So Peter was our technical co-founder who wrote the initial code, who was responsible for the platform, for the product. And that core team was responsible for building out Showpad for the first, I would say, 12 months of the existence of the company. And the first hires you do are engineers, then you hire your first salesperson and I would say the moment your company comes around 25 to 30 people that's when you need to start thinking about your first executives and your first VP of sales your first VP of marketing and Shopit is somehow different there in the sense that we set up uh, leadership teams in two continents. So the company is originating from Belgium and in, in Europe. And uh, until we raised our Series A, so until the moment the company was about a million, a bit over a million in, in revenue, um, we were solely based in Belgium. And the moment we raised our money, I moved myself to uh, the United States, moved to San Francisco uh, to set up operations there. And in the U.S., pretty quickly, we started to think about our leadership team. We started to think pretty quickly about, okay, let's first hire a product leader. Let's first hire a sales leader. Let's first hire a marketing leader. So we've spent an enormous amount of energy building leadership teams in both continents. And I mean, I must say, getting those right is probably one of the biggest things we've ever done for Shoka. Because if you get to 50 people, 100 people, then suddenly you as a founder, you're not the person, I, mean, I would say, making all the changes anymore yourself. You have to rely on that leadership in every department that is helping you out to to be better and uh, and grow faster. And you said there about it kind of being a core determinant of your success. I'm intrigued to hear then how how you learned from the process of building out the core team, what you think you did well, and what if you look back and say you found another startup in three years' time, what you'd do differently this time? So I think what we did really well uh, with our first executives' hires is, uh, I mean, hire through the network. It's super important if you hire your VP sales, your VP marketing, your VP product, that you're just not relying on getting inbound from LinkedIn or like people going to your website because the best executives out there never ever look for a job. And this was especially hard for us here in the US because when we arrived in, uh, in San Francisco, we didn't have any network. Like nobody knew Showbet. Nobody knew that that crazy little Belgian startup that was trying to do something big. So my first priority here was to build a network in the US. And I mean, thanks to Jason, who was uh, an advisor of the the first hour here in the United States, we started to get introduced to several great people. And through his network, through the network we built, we were able to get in some great candidates. To be really honest, we didn't got it right immediately. So we hired a VP sales, then worked out, then hired a new one. That one is working out really well. We hired a head of marketing.
marketing didn't work out. Then we hired our VP marketing, and that's now working out. So why why, uh, why didn't those ones work out? And what do you think you kind of learned from those not working? I think especially on 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 the VP sales side, it's hard, right? Because you're looking kind of for a unicorn, somebody who. Uh, knows how to sell very similar products as the one you're selling, somebody who's able to deal with a sales cycle that is as complex as yours. And then more importantly, somebody who has been through that growth, somebody who knows how it is to scale a sales team from three, four, five reps to, to 25, 30 reps and even more. Those kind of people are really rare. What you see happening a lot is that uh, startups then make a bet on, I would say, a director of sales, somebody who managed a few people uh, in a sales organization, was successful and is now looking for the next big thing, which is then most often uh, a VP sales role. And there's some risk in there because sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's a very hard balance to strike, like having people who are able to, to sell the product who can still go deep enough to help reps closing deals, to coach them, to make sure the big deals come in versus having, I would say that, that, that focus on process because the moment you have more than six, seven reps, process becomes really important and be able to scale that. So it's, it's a very tough balance. But uh, if you hire the right person, it can be magic. In terms of hiring those right people, as you said, kind of VPs of sales in the Valley, if you want your top experience VPs of sales, it takes uh, a big network. How much of a role did brand play for you? Because obviously Showpad, as you said, a small startup from, from Belgium at the time, how much of a role did brand play for you in hiring top exec? I would say Showpad probably still doesn't have a brand in, in Silicon Valley. Uh, so we probably still should do a lot more in building our brand and making sure that more people know about our company. But I think that things we did really well was uh, that Beach and I built a network of powerful advisors of senior people in the Valley who had started companies, who had sold their companies, who had led big sales teams and building great relationships with them. So literally almost every single executive hire we currently uh, have at Chopin and is still working from us came in through reference, through somebody I met uh, via contact, via venture capitalist, and then I got introduced to them. So although we didn't have a public brand, we started to develop that mini brand in very certain areas and there was a group of people in the valley that started to do us really well and they spoke highly of us they were following our our growth our metrics they were impressed and i mean that's how we got to those people in, t- in terms of uh, now would you ever hire a non-experienced exact member of the team i just had jim stoneham on the show from new relic and he said your core exec team have to be extremely experienced would you ever in any case hire someone who's young and passionate and a hustler or do you think they do have to be the experienced it's it's i mean you always have the unicorns right you always have uh the execs that only worked at a startup for two to three years have never managed a big group and some of them really work out some of them become extremely successful but i do agree that it's rare well for example if you look at our vp sales in uh, in europe uh, david i mean he's somebody who never managed a sales team before showpath he was actually our first account executive and he's doing a phenomenal job uh christian our vp product he had some management experience of products team in the past that did some great director roles, but he wasn't that super experienced executive yet. And he's working out really well as well. So you have those exceptions, but in general, I do agree, especially when it comes to hiring your sales and marketing leadership. And if you're, for example, wanting to scale from, I would say, 10 million to, to 50 million 
somewhere from 50 to 100, then you need some experience. And that's, uh, that's super important. I'm really intrigued. Uh, Jason Lemkin recently wrote about kind of management churn at the exact level in terms of when you reach different levels of ARR and different scaling processes in the company, you churn in yep. terms of management. Have you found that with Showpad where you've gone from 1 million ARR to 10 to, to, to where you are now and notice that churn in the core exec team where they no longer fit for the scale that yep. you're building to? Um, great question. I would say uh, we had it in the early days where we hired our first marketing leader and like we outgrew that marketing leader pretty quickly. She wasn't used to dealing with, with the volumes and, and the level of complexity that it took to scale a company like Showpad instead of from 1 to 5 but from, one to, from 5 to 50. So we had that a little bit but like a big tip that I always give uh, to fellow founders is when they're hiring executives try to make sure you hire an executive that can last longer than 2 to 3 years I try to hire somebody who has seen growth and, and super important there for me is when you interview them is that they actually have a few experiences where they stayed a pretty long time in a startup where they have seen growth from 1 to 20 or from 5 to 25 uh, so so far we've, we've been pretty good at that and the executives we hired always were pretty experienced but they always had that experience where they saw the early stage of a company and they saw the later stage of a company and sometimes the risk is, is if you hire at the, the, the big corporate exec that those people don't know anymore what it is to, to frontline salespeople or to be really hands-on and, uh, and scrappy. And we spoke there about two, obviously uh, scaling the exec team. Another huge element of your role in scaling Showpad is scaling the sales and the customer success team. So, so, yeah. so starting with the customer success team, how have you yeah. looked to effectively scale that with the growth of Showpad? So it's the, the customer success team is, is now becoming the big department in our company. It's becoming the biggest group of people next to engineering that we're building. And uh, that scale started with hiring our VP of customer success, Antoine. So Antoine was somebody who had scaled customer success teams at Salesforce, at Ignite, and really had a playbook on how to grow a team from two to three people to 50, 60 people uh, in customer success. Now, it starts with how you define customer success, right? But even because even there, there's a lot of differences between several companies uh, that we know. But customer success for us is technical support. Uh, so being able to have support people who are helping customers with issues, with bugs. It's professional services as a department that focuses on the implementation and the onboarding of our software. And then you have the customer success coaches. So those are the people who take over an account and make sure it's successful once the deal gets closed. Um, so it's so that we have a few rule of thumb. So for example, Antoine, uh, he wants to make sure that every customer success coach only manages maximum 50 accounts. And uh, the size of the account uh, doesn't really matter, although we don't provide service to customers, for example, who have less than 5K in ERR. But every customer who has more than 5K gets a customer success manager. And there, Antoine wants to make sure that they max out around 50. Because the, more, the moment you have more than 50 accounts, it becomes really hard to build a successful relationship with, uh, with your customer, to be proactive, to help them out. And our team has done a phenomenal job so far. Um, if you look at our metrics, like last year we had uh, a 69% renewal rate, so we only 
company had 4% logo churn and downsell. Uh, our customers grow on, a, on an annual basis over 125%. We have a phenomenal MPS score. And it's all happening, of course, A, because we have a phenomenal product. Uh, but secondly, because we invested extremely aggressively into our customer success organization. And because like, we have a very proactive team that reaches out, that helps our customers. And honestly, that also thinks a bit commercially, right? Because that's the big discussion in customer success. Do you let your customer success people upsell? Do you let them drive a sales cycle? What's your, what's your would, thesis on that? Because there's some uh, customer yeah. success people I know who kind of have the hippie hand-waving where you don't sell anything. Uh, and yeah. there's others who say, like, if it's in the best interests of the customer, then yeah. upsell is net. Where do you stand on that? So, so the current thinking with us is to make sure that, that customer success people don't upsell. Uh, customer success people need to be the voice of the customer. They need to be that trusted party of your customer where it's not about the money, where it's not about the contract, but it's about making sure that your customer success people make their customers insanely successful. And we found so far that it's not a Chinese wall, but making sure that there's a pretty big difference between what a customer success person does and what a salesperson does. So at this moment, we don't want them to drive sales cycles. We don't want them to upsell. But I do understand and I do see as you scale that probably you want to build a bit more specialization in your customer success teams and give them gradually some more responsibilities about growing uh, Accounts, but so far uh, we make sure that the sales rep still uh, drives the sales cycle. And do you think they need to be product specialists? And you said about technical support there. Uh, do they yes. need to be product specialists themselves to fully be able to help the customer yeah. be successful with the product? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I mean, I would say any customer-facing employee actually, but needs to be a product expert. Our, our salespeople, sales engineers, customer success people, marketers, because you can't sell the value you can sell the product without knowing it. So the moment somebody joins at Showpad, they get in their first week a big product certification, lots of tests, lots of trainings, and that's a super important thing. But I would say even more important, and that's for customer success people as of or salespeople, they need to become problem experts. And that's, for example, a program that we're going to, to start in, in the next few weeks. So we obviously give our people a lot of training around uh, what's the problem we solve, how does the industry look like, how does the ecosystem look like of, of similar technologies. But we want to go much deeper into that. We want to make sure that everybody who speaks with a customer becomes a problem expert, meaning that they're able to go extremely deep in specific problems we want to solve for our customers. And that may sound simple, right? Showbat is a sales enablement platform, but I can guarantee you that sales enablement is totally different for a medical devices company versus a startup or versus a technology company. So we want to make sure that our teams become much more smarter what our customers really, really need. And that is different based on your company size. That is different based on your industry. That is different based on the department we're selling into. And that's quite complex. So we're now setting up a whole program to go the extra mile in uh, educating our people in there. And then I have to ask one more question before our quick fire round. And it's at what stage did you hire Antoine? Often I hear the $2 million ARR benchmark for a CSM. When did you decide you needed a CSM? I think we hired Antoine when we were about, I think, 1.4, 1.5. So I think that was the level Showpad is at. So pretty close to the $2 million mark. And for a while, he was the only customer success person in, uh, in San Francisco. So for a while, he managed 
some of the accounts himself. And then, of course, with with customer success, as you scale, as you hire, as you bring in more customers, it's it's easy to to add additional headcount to to his team. But yeah, around one point five million. Absolutely. And I want to dive into a, a quick fire. We call sixty seconds faster. Um, so sixty seconds per answer. What do you think? I love it. I love it. I mean, because if you make sure people stick with sixty seconds, they will get to core very quickly so i love that concept exactly don't worry i'm very strict um so yeah. what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning um that's a great question i would say that if i would start over again and if i would build uh my teams again for example i would never hire uh, one sales rep or one marketer i would always hire two or three people at the same time because sometimes when you scale and something isn't working out and for example do you hire one sales rep and it's not working you actually don't have a clue what's wrong is it a salesperson is it a product is it a marketing is it anything else so what i've learned in the last few years is that you always have to a b test and that's a concept that that is very known in marketing but if you hire people if you scale organizations it's extremely important because you get more data points uh, on what's working and what's not so i would say that's probably the first big learning i would i would give myself uh, the second one is uh, to raise a bit more money in the early days so we were very scrappy and very i would say sensitive with the money we raised our first round was $2 million, our second round, 8.5. And in hindsight, I probably would raise a bit more money because uh, the year after we raised $2 million, we had to go raise again. And that's probably time that we wanted to spend on scaling a bit faster. So this would this would have brought Showpad to a higher revenue. So I think that's uh, the second thing. And then let's talk about the fundraising journey. What did you do well and what would you improve? You've got 30 seconds for each of that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think what we did, did well is we hired the right investor for the right so Series A was with Hummingbirds, uh, a Belgian VC fund, $2 million. They could perfectly help us to get to the next level. The second round was led by Down Capital, a company that specialized in SaaS companies with our size, and they helped us perfectly to get to the next level. And now we raised $50 million from inside partners who are all about getting companies from $10, $20 million to 100 So I think picking the right investor at the right time is something extremely important. Um, what could we have done better? Probably lots of things. Uh, but uh, given the fact that, I mean, the funding ultimately worked out, I'm very happy with where we are today. Uh, so I wouldn't say some really negative things. I think we did a pretty good job in, in raising the money so far. And then your favorite SaaS reading material, what's your must-reads when they come in? Well, um, SaaS, right? I would say everybody who comes in and wants to learn about uh, SaaS, I recommend them to go to Saster. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, that's how I learned the basic concepts. Uh, 16 Ventures, obviously, when, when it's about customer success, super important. Uh, for Entrepreneurs.com, another super exciting blog with tons of learnings. And I think those three were kind of my resources with BJ in terms of uh, getting the knowledge on SaaS. And that's the advice that I would give to, to anybody else. And then let's do final one here in terms of quickfire. And that is biggest advice to early stage SaaS founder. Um, if I was starting a SaaS company, what would you say, Harry, you've got to know this? So hire your first sales rep as quickly as possible. The moment you've sold five to ten contracts and there is a mini product market fit, hire those two sales reps as quickly as possible. That's that's what I would do. We waited way too long with that. And uh, it can change a lot when you hire those people a lot faster. Oh, Louis, I do love interviewing you because that was my next question. This isn't quick fire, don't worry. So now, final, final question, but on the sales team, and this is long form, as I said. How have you looked to 
build a repeatable sales process with Showpad in the early years? To be really honest, in the early days, I mean, you need to have some process, right? It's important to put in some rules in place to make sure sales reps qualify, to make sure they understand all the stages of an opportunity. But in the early days, to be honest, it's all about the art of selling. It's all about really understanding how to deal with objections. It's understanding which questions, like which remarks will make a difference or will have the aha moment for your buyer. And that's where your initial focus should be. But of course, the moment you, you start to scale your sales team and you have three, four, five, six reps, that's when you need to double down a little bit more on the, on the process. But it all starts with the art. But as you scale, the science of sales starts to step in. And, and where Showpad is today, the science of sales is becoming more and more important. And uh, ultimately, you need to have the sales leader who understands the importance of the balance uh, as a company in the early days. But of course, obviously, at when you scale as well. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of the structure of your current sales team, how does that look like? And how has that changed over time? Um, so, so, so we have two sales organizations. We have one in Europe uh, that has sales reps in Belgium and in London, and we have a sales organization in the U.S. I would say biggest change is, is of course, uh, in the beginning, like you have a few reps selling to all types of customers. The first segmentation you do is industry, SMB, mid-market, enterprise. As we're now scaling, we also start to develop some industry experts. So the bigger you become, the more specialization you have. And it's it's your job together with the VP sales to figure out what makes the most sense. I would say, secondly, what's also changing, of course, is the support organization you're building around those account executives. And that's something that I totally underestimated when scaling a sales team. It's not when you get from two reps to 12. That your headcount grows with 18. No, you need to have frontline managers, you need to have sales engineers, you need to have SDRs, um, you need to have other people supporting them and to be successful. So, before you know it, in order to have 20 reps, you need 20 other people to support them. And that's when SaaS really becomes expensive. That's when you start to uh, have a pretty big cost related to the sales team. Absolutely. Well, Louis, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining me and taking the time out. Uh, and I look very forward to welcoming you back for round two uh, with Peter. Perfect. It's be fantastic. But thank you so much. Yes, let's do that. Thanks, Harry. And I'd like to say a huge thank you to Louis for giving up his time today to be on the show. And if you love the episode today, then you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings, or you can follow the main man Jason Lemkin on Twitter at JasonLK. Or for all things SASTA, you can head over to the SASTA website, where there's a whole host of articles, resources, and more podcast episodes. So simply head over to SASTA.com, that's S-A-A-S-T-R.com. We'd absolutely love to see you there. And also, we look very forward to bringing you next week's episodes.